this time different? That's the question at the heart of the debate surrounding automation. In response to fears that artificial intelligence and robots will finally take all the jobs, techno-optimists will point to history. The Industrial Revolution was pretty disruptive, but all the old jobs were replaced by new jobs, and living standards dramatically increased. So the question again is whether this time is different. Will AI permanently displace people in a way that power looms, electricity, and computers fail to do? And what does our past experience with technology-based disruption teach us about the future? To explore these questions, I'm joined by Carl Benedict Frey. Dr. Frey is the Oxford Martin City Fellow at Oxford University, where he teaches economics and economic history. In 2013, he co-authored a widely shared paper titled The Future of Employment, in which he estimated that 47% of jobs were susceptible to automation. He has returned to this subject with his new book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. At the most recent Democratic debate, there was a sort of mini debate that broke out on the issue of technology, automation, and jobs. On one side, you had some of the Democratic candidates who seemed very concerned that uh, robots, you know, for lack of a better term, were going to take a lot of jobs and there was going to have to be a big policy response. And sort of leading the charge on that side has been dark horse candidate Andrew Yang, who uh, wants universal basic income because he's very worried about technological unemployment. In fact, he describes the problem this way on his website. In the next 12 years, one out of three American workers are at risk of losing their jobs to new technologies. And unlike with previous waves of automation, this time new jobs will not appear quickly enough in large enough numbers to make up for it. To avoid an unprecedented crisis, we're going to have to find a new solution unlike anything we've done before. So that's sort of the Andrew Yang, robots are gonna take the jobs position. So that was, there was that, sort of that group at the debate. And then we had Elizabeth Warren, who seemed less concerned, and this is what she said. So the data show that we have had a lot of problems with losing jobs, but the principal reason has been bad trade policy. The principal reason has been a bunch of corporations, giant multinational corporations who've been calling the shots on trade, uh, corporations that have no loyalty to America. So you have what appear to be two different views on that. So, and, I, and I'm not sure they're actually talking about the same thing. One seemed to be, uh, Warren seemed to be about what had happened up till now, while Yang uh, worried about the future. So let me start off by asking after that very long intro, what has been the impact of automation on jobs well, I mean, I guess historically, but particularly in the in the 2000s, when we've seen like the decline in manufacturing jobs, at least in the last few decades, is it an automation story? Is it a trade story? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I, I didn't see the debate, admittedly, but I think I actually disagree with both of those assessments. Uh, first of all, I think anyone who tries to put a timeline on how fast uh, automation is going to happen is bound to be wrong because it will always involve the human factor. Organizations have to adjust, legislation will have to adjust, people will have to get used to working the technology and so on and so forth. And so I don't think there is a way of really uh, uh, trying to estimate how fast this will happen. There's a very uh, specific forecast by Andrew Yang. I mean, 12 years, you know, and... In fact, they used to say, you know, in the in, in when you're making a stock market forecast, either give a number or a year, but not both. He sort of gave both 12 years and one out of three Americans. 
I think that's right, and we, we, we've been accused of doing that uh, uh, as well. So a lot of people think that we published a study back in 2013, which said that 47% uh, of American jobs will be gone in 20 years, which means that, well, it would probably be around 13 years now, and maybe that's the uh, estimate that Andrew Yang is referring to, I don't know. Uh, but what we did in the study was actually trying to assess the potential scope of automation from a sort of pure technological capabilities point of view. Uh, we didn't try to make any assessment of its pace, which we described will be shaped by a lot of other factors that have uh, nothing or little to do uh, with the technology um, itself. Um, but I do think uh, at the same time this, that the impact of technology on the labor market has been uh, very significant over the long run. It's obviously been very significant. The majority of people used to work in ag agriculture. The reason that they don't is primarily due to uh, changes in, uh, in technology and mechanization of um, agriculture and the appearance of better paying manufacturing and service jobs. And if we look from the 2000s in particular, I think uh, Chinese import competition has clearly played a very large role. Um, but the manufacturing output share in the US has been very stable over time. What's been falling is the uh, manufacturing employment share. So a lot of stuff is still being produced uh, in the US, uh, just not by that many people. So the story of the and you're right, and that's and, and sort of the story, the sort of the long-term story of disruption of uh, of labor market from technology. Again, you know, we used to be, you know, almost everyone was a farmer. Now, very few people are farmers. That's a well-known story. Uh, and in the 2000s, you sort of have this interesting trade aspect from the, you know the China trade shock. David Otter um, has written this paper, but that to still focus on trade is that sort of a backward-looking thing. I mean. I think even that paper on the China shock, David Otter and his co-authors seem to indicate that, that that story was pretty much at an end. So is it sort of back to usual? Is it sort of, you know, we're resuming regularly scheduled programming when looking at labor markets where the key thing is really uh, automation and technological progress rather than trade? Yes, I mean, I think first of all, uh, the um, manufacturing employment in absolute terms peaked in, peaked in 1979. So I think the China shock has been part of a long-standing process of deindustrialization de and disappearing jobs in manufacturing, which have been driven by both trade and technology. The two are somewhat hard to disentangle and it's almost somewhat meaningless because both are driven by technology. And without advances in uh, in uh, uh, communications technology, it wouldn't be feasible for companies to take advantage of cheap labor in countries like China and coordinate production um, at distance. But the um, globalization story is also technology story because without the advances in communication you couldn't have these far-flung supply chains exactly so that's that that's the point i'm trying to make um, and secondly though looking forward i think there are a lot of jobs that uh can't be sent abroad uh, but that can be automated so a growing share of people working on traded sectors of the economy uh, when uh, autonomous vehicles arrive, a lot of truck, bus, and taxi drivers are going to be increasingly exposed to automation, but those jobs aren't going to be sent to China. Uh, similarly, there are roughly 3.5 million people working in, uh, as cashiers in the United States today, and they're not exposed to import competition, um, but they are exposed to Amazon Go. Uh, and so I do think that there is a tendency that we're sort of looking forward, uh, we are likely to see that 
automation is going to be play a bigger role um, in shaping the labor markets and uh, trade is probably going to play a diminishing role. Well, you, you mentioned sort of the, uh, the truck drivers, which has become a very common example to use about how um, technological progress is going, to, is going to cost jobs because obviously we read a lot about autonomous vehicles and, uh, and trucks seem like they might be Particularly, I guess, long haul trucks, which you're not, you know, you're not navigating, you know, uh, the, the Boston city streets in February, which seems really hard to do. But rather, you have a truck going on an interstate highway from coast to coast, doesn't have to deal with, uh, you know, you know, kids playing and a ball goes into the street. It seems that that seems like a very clear cut example of how uh, you will have. Um, because of you know artificial intelligence that you'll have a lot of you'll have a lot of automation and that will cost truck drivers i don't know how many you know what share of all truckers or truck drivers it's it's a good number that those jobs will just disappear and so there you go technological progress eliminating jobs and jobs of people uh who may not you know may not be able to find other jobs very easily so i mean it's, it's, so take a look at that example what that tells us about automation going forward yeah i think the key point is what you mentioned last so people that won't find new jobs very easily so i think the story has not been one of you know, rising technological unemployment and you know 47 percent of jobs disappearing and leaving half uh, of people unemployed but the story has clearly been one of deindustrialization and creating a situation where the outside opportunities for primarily men without, uh, with no more than a high school degree, their outside options have steadily deteriorated. And I think the truck driver example is a, a, a sort of case in point on a continuation of that. So it's not the sort of high skilled and high income jobs that are most exposed to automation going forward. Uh, it continues to be a lot of manual uh, middle income uh, jobs um, that will most likely continue to put pressure on the wages of those with no more than a high school degree. And uh, just to focus on this example, because it, it is such a frequently cited example, because I think if you read a lot of headlines that it sounds like autonomous trucks are right around the corner and there will be nobody sitting in those cabs, those truck cabs. So you'll have no humans involved. And this is going to happen in the next, you know, the next 18 months. How close is that scenario to reality? Do you think? Well, I'm an economist by background. So I rely mostly on my engineering sciences colleagues to try to make assessment along those lines. Uh, most of them think that it's uh, probably 10 to 15 years away. So that's level four, level five. So where there's uh, nobody mostly, sitting in that truck. Uh, exactly. But that is sort of from a technological capabilities point of view. And then there's the mm -hmm. separate question of how fast or how uh, long it will take for all the old vehicles to uh, circulate out of the system. Um, and that is probably going to depend a lot on government policy and creating subsidies that you know, incentivize people to uh, uh, shift to autonomous driving. Uh, I think it's also likely that adoption will differ quite significantly uh, uh, across cities. So it's much easier to navigate the city of Dubai than it is to navigate the city of London. Um, so I think it's, I mean, it's almost impossible to provide a timeline for how long but, it's going to take. But what about like, but what about sort of, you know, highway truck drivers? When could you, I mean, when could we see, I mean, as you understand the technology where you have uh, trucks going coast to coast on highways, there might be someone in the cab 
just in case or to handle tricky situations. But most of that drive is done uh, by uh, by machine. Yeah, and most of flying a plane is done by machines as well, but you still need a pilot for, for takeoff um, and landing. And to, re- that, and to, re- that and to reassure passengers. In well. <laughs> uh, indeed, and that, that was also true with the elevator operator, by the way. So a lot has to do with attitudes towards technological cha- uh, change as well, which I think is important to remember. A lot of people were terrified by the prospect of entering an elevator with no operator being responsible for their safety. Um, and it actually took some time for people to to uh, understand uh, that uh, well, uh, uh, the technology was say often safer than the operator. Uh, so in a similar way, I think it's going to to, to take some time for people to to sort of adjust uh, to that thought. Um, and for those reasons, uh, yeah, uh, adoption uh, uh, timelines are, are hard to uh, hard to pin down. Um, uh, but I think that if we look at it from a merely uh, technological capabilities point of view is probably 10 to 15 years down the road. Uh, there was a, uh, I, I, was on, I, was on, I was on Twitter and I noticed a tweet from a, uh, an aspiring, I think, cres- con- uh, congressional candidate who, I, who was trying to comment on this, you know, emerging sort of uh, automation debate, uh, at least uh, in the Democratic Party. And, he, and this is the example he decided to use of the impact of automation. I think it illustrates some of your points. And the tweet went like this. In 2004, Blockbuster Video had roughly 85,000 employees. In 2019, Netflix only has 5,500 employees. That's what automation does. It replaces large numbers of jobs to create just a few new jobs. What do you think about that example? Well, it does tell you that there are fewer people in one certain domain, but it doesn't tell you anything about the economy uh, uh, as a whole. And I think what a lot of people miss is that, I mean, yeah, the smokestack industries of the early 20th century, they did generate a lot of jobs. And if you look at software engineering, and there are not that many people employed in those industries and occupations directly. Uh, but those people tend to earn quite high va- wages and they, their income support a lot, a lot of jobs in the local service economy as people go out, take a tra- taxi, go to the hairdresser, go uh, grocery shopping and so on and so forth. And estimates by Enrico Moretti suggest that that creates on balance five new jobs uh, in the local on-trade um, service economy. Um, uh, and I think so often, you know, when, when, when we see uh, such examples, uh, people haven't sort of uh, uh, thought of uh, about too much of the second and third order effects. And you, you address a little bit of that in the book, uh, and you really differentiate between the sorts of technologies that replace jobs and the sorts that will also benefit workers and sort of create new jobs and, and allow them to do their jobs better. Uh, so it's sort of like not all automation is alike. And I believe uh, Daron Asimolo has also written a bit about this and that you have sorts of technologies, which indeed will, which will uh, put a worker out of work. Uh, maybe then that, you know, that company will be more productive and maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll, that will generate other sorts of job growth. But there's also technologies which uh, just sort of help people do their jobs better and also sort of create new products and services. Do we know about, it seems like we right now maybe we need more about the enabling technologies rather than the replacing technologies. Do we know much about how to create more enabling technologies as well as replacing technologies? Right, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, 
Darren Mogler and Pascal Restrepo has an excellent paper distinguishing between enabling and replacing technologies. And uh, what my book does is try to sort of look at their relative uh, uh, importance or prominence in the economy uh, throughout history. And there's been, I think, different episodes of technological change, some being more labor replacing than others, some more um, augmenting and uh, enabling um, in a happy way. And uh, I think it's uh, clearly uh, true that different technologies have different impacts on, on, on average people. So if you take the telescope, for example, it didn't replace uh, any uh, 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 occupations uh, uh, doing any any, any, any uh, pre-existing work. It created and allowed us to do uh, previously unconceivable things, such as looking at the moons of Jupiter. Uh, if you think about the uh, automatic elevator, uh, it replaced people uh, operating elevators, even though there are more uh, elevators uh, in, in cities than ever before. Uh, so uh, it stands to reason that different technologies will have uh, different impacts on uh, people's jobs and wages. Do you think we are creating enough enabling technology now? Because that seems to be, I think, concern uh, of many people that that these kind of technologies are just going to be, re you know, replace workers and they're not going to create sort of new jobs and greater prosperity. Is that an issue or is that just because people are focusing only on sort of the obvious cases of where someone had a job and now it's now it's a piece of software doing that job? Yes, I mean, uh, first of all, I think it's much easier to look at the horizon and see, okay, these jobs are potentially, potentially automatable and it's much harder to try to envision the jobs that may uh, appear um, in the future. Uh, but with regard to the question uh, of whether we can create more enabling technologies to counterbalance the replacing ones that we see on the horizon, uh, in theory, uh, that sounds good, but I don't think we have the knowledge to do that in practice. It's very hard to sort of steer technological progress uh, from the top down. Uh, I haven't heard of any good example uh, 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 where that has been been, been 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 done in a convincing way. So uh, I just think that you know we we don't really have a knowledge of how to do that. And uh, just uh, one more question, then I want to sort of dig a little bit into the the history that you get into with the the book. The impact, let's say again, let's with sticking with the two thousands uh, of of technology on jobs. I was sort of under the impression that. The area where you were seeing jobs replaced were sort of these middle skill kinds of jobs. So if you have, um, uh, I guess, if you have, I don't know, maybe lower skill jobs where you actually had to have someone there, a high touch job, uh, those are fine. Kind of the abstract thinking jobs, those are fine. But sort of those middle skill jobs, I'm not sure what these sort of you know classic example is, maybe a receptionist or something like that, that those were the jobs that were really being impacted uh, by technology. So is that true? And how will, what sorts of jobs and what kinds of workers are sort of most at risk going forward? Yes, if we look back, continuing in the 1980s, clearly been the middle uh, skill and middle income jobs that have disappeared uh, in manufacturing industry um, and also a lot of clerical back uh, office work. 
looking forward, uh, our estimates suggest that it's mainly the low skill, low income jobs, uh, like those of receptionists, like uh, those of security guards, like those of telemarketers um, that um, are most at risk. Um, and it's clearly the case that some you know, jobs uh, on the higher end of the skill spectrum are go going to be affected as well. So document review is no longer um, part of billable hours in law firms and medical diagnostics is something that computers are getting increasingly good at, but those technologies are not going to replace entire jobs. They may replace certain individual tasks with them in those jobs, and I think that's an important distinction. Well, I, I think the concern is that the future economy looks like uh, venture capitalists and their butlers. Like those, like those are going to be the two. Those are going to be the two areas, and if you know, and that's not a real attractive future. Um, is that is that just a what? I mean, I realize I'm sort of exaggerating, but that that kind of is what people fear. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a concern. So, I mean, we, as I mentioned earlier, we do see uh, some jobs emerging very skilled um, uh, technology sectors. Uh, those people, as uh, uh, their wages increase, tend to demand more in-person type of services that are hard to automate as well. So, yeah, there is probably a concern that you know, there's going to be an economy of software engineers and hot yoga instructors. Um, but I do think that there is a lot more uh, uh, to, to, to that story. So clearly, a lot of jobs are going to appear that we haven't you know, even conceived of. Um, yet. Um, and also, I think it's important to remember that many of these in-person service jobs that are emerging are actually more pleasant. Uh, it's nicer to work in a restaurant or uh, in the gym than it is to work um, in a factory. Um, and I think that there's a lot of mo non-monetary factors that need to be taken into consideration as well. Uh, and again, the book is also a, uh, a history of technological progress. And sort of one of the classic questions is why why did economic growth basically not exist forever? And then suddenly we got a lot of economic growth. We got the Industrial Revolution. So why, what, what, as you understand it, and it seemed like that was not a very interesting question for a long time that we sort of had it figured out. And now it seems like something we're, we're talking a lot about again, especially as there's been concerns about, uh, you know, about productivity stagnating. What what was the catalyst for the original sort of industrial revolution as you understand it? So I don't believe in monocausal explanations of economic de development. I think that was a blend of things that came together that made the industrial revolution European um, and British. But I think that one very underestimated factor that I tried to highlight in the book has to do with uh, the uh, structure um, of uh, political power. Um, so before the Industrial Revolution, in most pre-industrial societies, craft guilds was a force of uh, strong political clout, and they didn't have any interest in technologies that threatened their uh, jobs um, and incomes. And uh, fearing social unrests, monarchs or governments um, typically sided with the uh, guilds rather than pioneers of industry, um, fearing that you know they may sort of lead to challenge or prompt a challenge to the political um, status quo. Um, and what happened in Britain was, first of all, with the rise of Atlantic trade, that the 
new merchant class uh, emerged uh, and they were the ones who stood to benefit from mechanization because with rising wages uh, mechanization was what allowed them to remain competitive uh, in trade uh, secondly with the turnpike trusts that paved the way for the construction of a much better road uh, um, network in Britain uh, the integration of markets meant that the uh, political power of the craft guilds um, was um, gradually eroded because it didn't extend uh, beyond their own city. And as markets integrated, they were exposed to um, a lot more outside competition. Um, and cities like Birmingham and Manchester emerged from essentially previously rural areas, which weren't uh, um, exposed to um, any pre-existing craft guilds. Um, and naturally, they also become uh, became the motors of the um, first industrial revolution. Um, and thirdly, um, as um, the political power of uh, craft guilds diminished, the uh, threat from below diminished as well. Um, but with um, growing competition um, among nation states in Europe, uh, the threat of foreign invasion became much greater and therefore it became increasingly uh, hard to align uh, technological conservatism with the political status quo. And that is uh, why, why I think that the first industrial revolution uh, happened in Britain. Uh, science and other things clearly played a very big role as well, but that was more in the later stages of the first industrial revolution and even more so during the second industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. so and, and, and if you look at, so if you look at a uh, sort of a very simple chart of economic growth and rising incomes, it looks like no, no rise and all of a sudden about 1800, you know, it goes straight up. But that's a very simplified version. There was this period where you had you know faster growth and faster productivity, but you weren't seeing sort of working class living standards rise, and it's been called Engels' Pause, named after the German philosopher and uh, co-author of the Communist Manifesto. Do you think we're in a in a kind of Engels' Pause right now? Because you read about all these advances in robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, but you're, we're not seeing some explosion. Uh, of growth in people's living standards. Is that where we are right now? And in 10 years or 5, 10, 15 years, uh, we're going to suddenly see rapid growth, rapid productivity growth, and then rapid income growth? Yeah, I think that's broadly where we are, although I'm you know, so slightly wary of predicting in the future because I think uh, very much depends on the political economy of technological change. And I don't think that we can take the progression of it for granted. I think uh, much of the positive attitudes that people have towards technological progress in the 20th century was the historical exception uh, rather than the no Norman. For most of history, people resisted anything that they uh, felt threatened their skills and incomes. And uh, at the time when Engels was writing, most economists didn't even believe that technology could uh, improve the human lot. What Malthus and Ricardo and Marx and Engels all had in common is that they uh, didn't think that mechanization could prompt wages uh, to rise and it took essentially sort of uh, the late 19th century to to prove them wrong and I think looking backwards from them uh, working people saw that mechanization translated into higher wages um, but if people don't see that happening today I don't think they are uh, as likely to 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 remain positive to it, and 
if we if we go back to the 1980s, wages of prime-age men with no more than high school degree has actually been steadily falling for 40 years. Um, their consumption possibilities have clearly not diminished. But I think if people see diminishing prospects uh, in the labor market, they could uh, potentially try to opt for policies uh, uh, that uh, aim at slowing down the pace of automation. And robot taxes are now being discussed right. on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, a majority of Americans, according to a recent Pew Research survey, now think there should be, be restrictions on the number of machines businesses uh, can implement. Uh, so I, I really don't think that the progression of technology can be taken for granted. So, so is your is your is your bigger concern as if 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 we assume if I'm going to assume that you think technology is a good thing, more technological progress would be a good thing. Is your concern that all the good ideas have taken, all the low hanging fruit has been picked? It's very hard to generate, you know, significant new technological advances. Is your concern about the technology, or is it more again this political, you know, social backlash to technology? that the bare, ultimate barrier is our willingness to accept disruption versus our ability to create it. So I don't, I'm not very concerned about that, you know, all the good ideas have been, been, been uh, uh, arrived at and all the great inventions have already uh, been uh, invented. I think what economic history quite clearly shows with regard to the first industrial revolution, the second computer revolution, and presumably with artificial intelligence, again, is that it takes a very long time for technology to really give a boost to productivity because businesses need to figure out how to productively use the technology and, and rearrange their uh, production processes um, accordingly. So, I mean, if you take the electric motor, for example, I mean, the early days of factory uh, electrification, uh, companies merely replaced the steam engine with an electric motor as the cent central power source in the factory. And all the shafts and counter shafts that were post the uh, constant threats to people's uh, fingers, arms, and lives uh, remained intact. And it was only after roughly four decades that engineers figured out that, well, actually, you can equip every machine with its own electric motor, and then you can sequence uh, them uh, according to the natural flow of production. And that is uh, essentially what gave rise to the age of mass production, what allowed Henry Ford to produce the T-model at a sufficiently low price for it to become the people's vehicles. And that sort of gradually then spread um, across industries. And I think we're at a similar stage with uh, artificial intelligence today. Uh, many AI technologies are simply not sufficiently good yet. Um, but I think it's important to remember that if you go back to the steam engine, early steam engines, for example, they were mainly used to drain coal mines, and even that they didn't do particularly well. Um, but eventually they became the prime motors of the um, first industrial revolution. Um, so I'm not particularly concerned about the potential future potential of productivity growth and um, i'm more uh, concerned about the second point that you raise and that is sort of the re resistance so, so, how, the so, so how do you then, then what do you think are the key policies to, to to create a supportive political economy uh for technological progress at this point well i think that it's hard to provide sort of andrew yang would say it's ubi that, andrew yang would say it'd be ubi Right. So that I don't believe, for example, because I don't think that the challenge lies in people not having uh, sufficient 
consumption possibilities any longer. I think you know people are faring better as consumers uh, today than they did uh, a decade, two or three uh, decades ago. Um, the challenge is more in the labor market, and economists tend to think that the purpose of production is consumption, but actually that's not true. People attach a lot of meaning to their jobs. Uh, I think one of the most consistent findings is that people who are um, people who work are happier than those uh, who don't. If you look at neighborhoods where jobs have disappeared, and those are associated with a lot of um, social ills. Um, so I think the challenge is more of sort of trying to help people uh, moving into meaningful jobs, um, sort of making sure that the transition is not too hard, and uh, that you know. Do we know how to do help. that? Because all I hear is that job reach. I mean, if you go to a com, and obviously you've probably been at a lot of conferences where this issues come up, and someone will talk about, oh, we need education reform and job retraining. Well, you know, the job retraining part, we seem not to know how to do particularly well. So, you know, what is the alternative for the, you know, the 55-year-old person who's automated out of a job? Um, do we just say, well, guess what? You know, you, you, you have no right for the rest of your life to a $90,000 a year job. Maybe you only have a right to it. Maybe you can only work a $55,000 a year job. That's just the way it is. Maybe we'll give you some wage insurance. Is that really the only explanation? Because it doesn't sound like he's going to become a coder. No, I think that's right. Um, but I think there are certain things that can be done at least to sort of reduce the barriers to moving between jobs and geographies. So I think occupational licenses are frequently mentioned. I think it's ridiculous. You need to sit two exams to become a hair shampooer in the state of Tennessee. And if you don't want to move across states, you might need another new license because they are not harmonized across space. Uh, similarly, um, moving between places is made harder by the fact that more people um, own their homes. Uh, I don't think that there's a particularly good reason why we should encourage uh, home ownership. Uh, secondly, um, if you look at the places where, where um, most new jobs are emerging, and they are primarily emerging in cities with skilled populations, um, you see that house prices have uh, risen very significantly in those places, um, but and housing supplies failed to uh, keep pace, and we have a lot of zoning restrictions uh, that are responsible uh, for that, um, that uh, could be um, abolished. Uh, thirdly, uh, one example that I is, is close to my heart because it's close to where I grew up in Sweden. So Malmö was a city that... Um, uh, was was in trouble for a long time after its uh, shipyard closed down in the early 1990s. It used to specialize in building ships. Um, and the revival essentially came with the construction uh, of the bridge to Copenhagen, uh, which allowed people to, in Malmö, which was a city in decline, to tap into booming labor market in Copenhagen. Most of people would commute back to Malmö, they would live there because housing was cheap. Most of them will spend uh, most of the money uh, locally where they live, which gave a boost to the local service economy. And I think a lot can be done in terms of actually connecting sort of declining regions and, uh, and cities with uh, expanding ones. Looking forward, will it, do you think it is, which is the more likely scenario, that because of technology uh, and advances and living standards, that we will have unemployment and, and, and income growth better than what we've seen over the past few decades? Or will we see sort of slower income growth 
and higher unemployment due to automation. So do you see a, a, a going forward more a future of your enabling technology having good impacts or replacing technology having sort of impacts that a lot of anxious workers fear? So I think one very important point that Derma Asimoglu and Pascal Restrepo make in the, one of the recent papers is that even if technology is of the replacing sort, uh, you uh, the worst uh, periods for labor is those of replacing technological change and slow productivity growth. Um, the bo boost to productivity growth tends to come decades later when businesses sort of finally figured out uh, how to, to uh, restructure the production processes to take advantage um, of the new technology. So I think that even if this con sort of technological progress continues to be of the replacing sort uh, in the next decades, uh, the long run uh, benefits for labor are likely to, to, to be greater than, than these sort of short term pains they're going through now. Excellent. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. City sky comes down.